welcome to our holiday edition of Ancient Weirdness with Gunnar Hauser. And this also happens to be the final episode for 2021. I wanted to take this opportunity to let everyone know that in addition to the social media presence that the show has on Twitter, there's now a dedicated Facebook page to Ancient Weirdness with Gunnar Hauser. So if you're on Facebook, please like and follow it. This episode is dedicated to the idea of relics, objects believed to possess some kind of power or significance. In some cases, we do have tangible objects today in different parts of the world that are believed by at least some people to be these relics. In many cases, however, you have more than one candidate for the genuine object, each with its own faction of claimants. And there's also cases of relics that seem to be figments of imagination and may or may not have people searching for them today. So this is something different from that class of archaeological finds or artifacts that defy explanation or have an unclear purpose. That would be the preserve of another episode. Now, the practice of venerating relics is seen all around the world. In the ancient Western tradition, we have examples from Greece and Rome. Although it does not survive today, if it in fact did exist, the Spartans are said to have kept the flayed tattooed skin of a seer or prophet named Epimenides in one of their temples. This man was said to have acquired prophetic powers after having fallen asleep for 57 years in a cave on the island of Crete. When Alexander the Great began his expedition, his invasion of the Persian Empire, the first place he visited when he set foot in Asia was the site of Troy, which was still a city at the time, although it was abandoned in the early Byzantine period. He is said to have appropriated for himself the armor of Achilles, which he found in the Temple of Athena, and which is said to have made him a target, especially at the Battle of the Granicus soon afterwards because of its dazzling qualities. It's interesting that that suit of armor isn't really discussed in the biographies of Alexander after that early battle, and Alexander took many serious wounds in his later career, so he may have simply discarded it or decided that it was too valuable to actually wear it in battle, and its eventual fate is unknown. In ancient Rome, during the reign of the city's second king, Numa Pompilius, a bronze shield is said to have fallen from the heavens on March 1st. And a voice rang out from the sky stating that Rome would control the world as long as the shield survived. The 1st of March happens to have been the start of the new year in the original Roman calendar. On the advice of a nymph of the forest, Egeria, Numa had 11 exact replicas made. She had told Numa that this would make it far more difficult for would-be thieves to identify the original shield. And these 12 Anchilia, as they were known, were wielded by a group of priests called the Salii in certain festivals, including one where they used sticks to beat the crap out of some old guy dressed in animal skins on the Ides of March. There's a definite parallel between the story of the original shield and the Palladium, a wooden statue of the goddess Pallas Athena that was said to have fallen from the skies at the behest of Zeus and was found by Elus, the king who founded the city of Troy. However, when he first looked at it, he was struck blind and only recovered his sight through the performance of certain rituals later. The Palladium is said to have fulfilled the same function to protect the city of Troy, and so Troy couldn't be taken by the Greeks until the Palladium had been removed from its walls. When the Greeks found out about it, Diomedes and Odysseus snuck in and stole it, but it was later miraculously recovered by Aeneas, the prince of Troy, who escaped the destruction of his city and founded a settlement in Latium in Italy, his descendant Romulus becoming the founder of Rome. 
And the Palladium was kept in Rome as well as another sacred object that guaranteed Rome's safety. Since the Roman Empire became officially Christian by the end of the 4th century AD, the fate of the Palladium, the Twelve Anchilia, and other relics is unknown. The concept of relics is also seen in Judaism and Christianity. We have the two famous arks, the so-called Ark of the Covenant, as well as the Ark of Noah. The same term is used for both in English because of the similarity of an oblong shape. However, the terms in Hebrew are different. The dimensions and construction materials for both are described in detail in the Hebrew Bible or Christian Old Testament. The Ark of the Covenant is said to have helped the Israelites in battle. The Ark was said to hold the broken tablets of the Ten Commandments that Moses had brought down from Mount Sinai, as well as other objects such as the rod of Aaron and a container of manna from the desert. Nevertheless, the Israelites lost a battle where the Ark was present, and it was captured by their enemies, the Philistines. However, it caused an epidemic of hemorrhoids, or at least that's how it's been sometimes translated. The Hebrew word is aphulim, which can mean tumor more generally. However, it's referenced in the first book of Samuel to be tumors in the secret parts that actually led to the deaths of many Philistines. It makes you realize that the old Raiders of the Lost Ark movie could have ended in a way far more strange than it actually did. It also caused a plague of mice, which has led a few scholars to speculate that it might actually have been some version of bubonic plague. The Philistines kept moving the Ark from one city to another, but this plague of rodents and hemorrhoids followed the object wherever it went. The Philistines finally came to the conclusion that this thing was far too much of a pain in the ass to keep around, so they should just return it, which they did. Their seers recommended that for each of the five Philistine cities that the Ark had been present in, they should bestow upon the Israelites five golden mice and five golden tumors when they returned the Ark to them. This obviously raises the possibility that golden copies of hemorrhoids were made, and if those had survived until the present day, they would be relics for the ages. The Ark's eventual fate is unknown. Most scholars would propose that it was taken or destroyed by the Babylonians in the 6th century BC when they sacked Jerusalem and destroyed the original temple. However, Ethiopian tradition maintains that it was brought to their country, and some believe that it is still in the possession of the Ethiopian church to this day. Attempts to locate the possible remains of the other Ark, Noah's Ark, have been far more intense throughout history. Most traditions point to Mount Ararat in eastern Turkey as the final resting place of the Ark. However, there was not agreement on this in antiquity. There were also strong traditions connecting Mount Judy, which is in extreme southern Turkey, with the Mountain of the Story. An Assyrian king, Sennacherib, is said to have located one of the wooden beams from the Ark and had a temple constructed to house it on this mountain. Sennacherib ruled in the early 7th century BC, but the site was venerated for many centuries afterward. The Byzantine emperor Heraclius is said to have visited over 1,400 years later. We also have objects associated with Jesus of Nazareth, including the so-called Holy Lance. Based on a story in one of the Gospels that during the crucifixion, a Roman soldier pierced Jesus' side with such a lance and caused blood and water to flow out. It is also called the Spear of Longinus, this being the traditional name preserved for the Roman soldier in question. There's a story of a holy lance that was kept as a relic in Jerusalem that was captured by the Sasanian Persians. 
but then recovered by the Emperor Heraclius, who I mentioned a few minutes ago, and then kept in Constantinople. But there's another one associated with the city of Antioch, Antakya, in Turkey today. In 1098, the forces of the First Crusade captured that city, but then Turkish reinforcements arrived and besieged the Crusaders inside the city. There was an individual who was with the Crusaders, Peter Bartholomew, who woke up one morning, claimed that he had had a dream where St. Andrew had appeared to him, and took him into the cave in the side of a hill that still houses the Church of St. Peter even today. Once inside, St. Andrew pointed to the flagstones on the floor of the church, and then the dream ended. So Peter Bartholomew told everyone that was a sign that they had to dig underneath those stones in the church. They did so, and they supposedly found fragments of the Holy Lance. And this Holy Lance supposedly gave the crusading army a boost of morale, enabled them to rout the Turkish besiegers, and to eventually go on to capture Jerusalem itself in 1099. This version of the lance is unaccounted for today. However, there are others, which are kept in various museums and chapels. There's one in the Vatican itself, which was a gift from an Ottoman Turkish sultan in 1492. One is in Armenia. Another is in Vienna and is part of the so-called imperial regalia of the German kings. goes back at least to the 10th century AD. This, along with other objects in the collection of regalia, were hidden by the Nazis during the Second World War, but recovered by the Allies afterwards, and the lance is now in the Hofburg Palace. Also connected to stories of Jesus is the cup known as the Holy Grail. Now, the term grail relates to a cup or sometimes a bowl or a dish. It is connected to the Arthurian cycle of myths and first shows up in the late 12th century life of the hero Percival, written by Chrétien de Troyes, Percival being one of the Knights of the Round Table. But the sources don't all agree. For example, Wolfram von Eschenbach describes it as a stone connected to the alchemical idea of the Philosopher's Stone, something which can prolong life or has other magical powers. However, writers in the Middle Ages eventually linked it to the idea of the Holy Chalice, the cup used at the Last Supper, and then supposedly used by Joseph of Arimathea to catch some of Jesus' blood from the cross. Although no cup is specifically revered today as the Holy Grail, there are cups in various churches around Europe that are believed by some to be the Holy Chalice. The Cathedral of Genoa hosts a green glass goblet called the Sacro Catino that probably dates from Roman times. There's also one in Valencia, Spain. There are many other objects ranging from the very famous, such as the Shroud of Turin, to the incredibly obscure and even shocking to some. And from that second category, far and away the most bizarre example is the concept of the Holy Prepice, the foreskin of Jesus. Growing up within the religion and practice of Judaism, he would have been circumcised eight days after his birth, hence January 1st originally being the Feast of the Circumcision. The designation was changed in the 1960s. It's now referred to as the Feast of the Solemnity of Mary. However, in the Eastern Christian traditions, it is still celebrated as the Feast of the Holy Circumcision. So what happened to the foreskin? A writer late in the 1600s named Leo Alatas claimed that it wasn't on earth anymore, that it actually ascended into the sky and had turned into the rings of Saturn which had been recently discovered with the newly invented telescope. But most maintained that it had been miraculously preserved on Earth. Sources point to at least 18 objects, referred to as the Holy Prepice, hosted in various locations, each with their own faction of supporters. 
one that was kept in the Belgian city of Antwerp and had supposedly been brought back from the Holy Land by Godfrey of Bullion, one of the leaders of the First Crusade, was once seen to bleed. However, it disappeared during the Reformation. But most debates centered around one that had come into the possession of Charlemagne centuries earlier, around the beginning of the 9th century. Some claimed that it was a relic in the Abbey of Charroux near Poitiers, France. Others maintained that it had been presented to Pope Leo III by Charlemagne himself and was kept in Rome. In the early 1200s, Pope Innocent III, probably wisely on his part, declined an opportunity to rule on the authenticity of either of these examples of the preface. In 1527, Rome was sacked by a German army, and a soldier made off with the relic. He later showed up right outside of Rome in a small hill town called Calcutta and died of a wound there. But a few years later, the relic was discovered in a cave that he had used as shelter, and Calcutta became the site of pilgrimage for those who wanted to see this relic for many, many centuries. However, around 1900 or so, the church seems to have gotten more and more uncomfortable with this idea and supposedly threatened excommunication for anyone who would even discuss whether or not this was an authentic relic. It continued to be venerated until the early 1980s when it mysteriously vanished, a crime that has remained unsolved to this day. Now, to return to the Arthurian legends, there's also the famous sword known as Excalibur, often conflated with the sword in the stone which only Arthur is able to pull free, signifying that he is to become king. But the sword and the stone and Excalibur were once separate. They were brought together in the tradition after Arthur battles with the sword and the stone, and it breaks, and he receives the actual Excalibur from the magical Lady of the Lake. At the end of La Mort d'Arthur, The Death of Arthur by Thomas Mallory, one of the Knights of the Round Table, Sir Bedivere, returns Excalibur to the Lady of the Lake. Now, there really isn't a sword today anywhere identified with Excalibur, although in the 12th century, excavations were done in Glastonbury, England, that supposedly located the tombs of Arthur and Guinevere, that a sword was removed from the tomb, and King Richard I gave it as a gift to Tancred, the ruler of Sicily, while on his way to the Holy Land during the Third Crusade. However, even contemporary English writers cast doubt on the authenticity of these finds and think that it was connected to ideas of glorifying the Angevin monarchy. And Glastonbury Abbey was eventually destroyed in the dissolution of the monasteries during the English Reformation. Many aspects of the tale of Richard and Tancred just flat out don't make sense. If it was, in fact, the real Excalibur, such an amazing artifact of the people of Britain, why would Richard just give it away? Doesn't seem to have brought Tancred a whole lot of good luck in the remaining years of his life, either. And one would think that the remnants of the sword would still be kept somewhere in Sicily today. So Richard probably handed him any old sword, and the whole thing was just a PR stunt. Oddly enough, there still is a sword embedded in a stone that can be seen today, in the region of Tuscany in Italy, there's a little town called Cestino and a building called the Monte Sipi Chapel. In 1180, a man named Galgano Guidotti, a once violent knight who had mended his ways and become a religious recluse, dreamt of the archangel Michael, who told him to give away all of his earthly possessions. And Galgano scoffed and replied that that would be just as easy as ramming a sword through a stone, a feat which he then proceeds to accomplish in the dream. Soon afterwards, a horse led Galgano to a small hilltop that looked exactly like what he had seen in his dream, and he decided he wanted to plant a cross there, 
but had no materials for the cross other than his sword that he had wielded as a former knight. He was able to plunge the sword into a boulder. He died not long afterwards and was canonized as a saint within just a few years. About 20 years ago, a metallurgist ran tests on samples and determined that the sword does in fact date from the late 12th century. The chapel also contains relics of another kind, two shriveled human hands from some would-be thief who decided he was strong enough to take the sword from the stone. Legend has it that anyone who tries to do this meets with some kind of a bad end. Veneration of human remains as relics can be seen in many examples. To continue that idea of mummified hands, the so-called Holy Dexter, the preserved right hand of St. Stephan, can be seen in Budapest because he is a national hero, in many ways seen as the founder of the Kingdom of Hungary. From the 16th century onward, there was a sudden craze involving the decoration of skeletons of purported Christian martyrs from catacombs in Italy. Some can still be seen today in Germany encrusted with gold and gems. Some were known to make handsome profits from trafficking in these remains. Deus Dona, a deacon in Rome in the early 9th century, turned this into a family business, according to Einhard, one of the biographers of Charlemagne. Outright theft of the bones of saints and martyrs was actually quite common. This even applies to the bones of Santa Claus. Yes, you heard that correctly. Saint Nicholas. Originally the bishop of the Roman town of Mira, now Demre, in Turkey. Beyond that fact, not much can be verified about his life, although many legends accreted around his name. The association with children derives from a story that he resurrected three children who had been dismembered and pickled by an evil butcher who was going to pass them off as ham. And he did the original secret Santa when a man who had fallen into poverty had three daughters who he could not afford dowries for, so they couldn't get married, and the fear was they would fall into prostitution. So St. Nicholas secretly threw bags of gold through their window at night. On the third night, the father caught him without leaving out any milk and cookies, but thanked him profusely for the gifts. He may have been jailed during the persecution done by the emperor Diocletian late in the third century and then later freed, but the story gets particularly interesting many, many hundreds of years after his death. In 1087, merchants from the Italian town of Bari stole the largest bones from his tomb, citing the advancing army of the Seljuk Turks and fear that the tomb would be completely desecrated. So they did their own desecration. It's possible that they only had time to grab the larger bones because of resistance from the locals. They returned with their sacred plunder to their hometown of Bari and placed the remains in a new tomb in a church of St. Nicholas where they still reside. Thanks to everyone for continuing to support the show. I wish you all a happy holiday season, a happy new year, and I'll see you in 2022 for another episode of Ancient Weirdness with Gunnar Hauser.